Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, Richard Shepard. And before we get to today's interview, I would firstly like to thank previous guest Alex Grass for the copy of his new book, A Boy's Hammer. Alex and I discussed his work, recovery, and dog to sleep a few months ago, and we briefly discussed this book. It looks fascinating, and I urge you to seek out a copy wherever you can. And in more news from friends of the show, uh, Peter Laws has new, two new podcasts going on, in addition to the Creepy Cove Community Church. Frightful tells short, sharp tales of horror from around the world, and Hometown Histories Europe is a spin-off from the highly successful Hometown Histories podcast. Both are well worth a listen, as was Peter's discussion of Creepshow with me on this podcast a few months ago. Another former guest, Andy Stanton, the author of the Mr. Gum series of children's books, has launched a new podcast called The Tumblr's Willy, dedicated to the longest-running show in history. It's funny, bizarre, and exactly what you might expect from Andy and his co-host, Andy Bobro, the latter being a writer on uh, Community, Malcolm in the Middle, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Andy and mine's epic two-part discussion of it on this podcast was one of the deepest of deep dives, and we hope to welcome Andy back again soon to cover another King epic. So please go back and listen to those reviews and interviews and narrate, review, like, and subscribe on wherever you find podcasts. Today, however, we're going all the way back to uh, some of Stephen King's earliest writings. Indeed, the first piece of long fiction he wrote back in his freshman year at the University of Maine, back around 1966, with the cult novella, The Long Walk. Now, I would suggest that more than any of the, uh, uh, any of the other Backman books, this is the one that stood the test of time and even become a, a huge cult classic. Um, the premise is simple. 100 young men walk the New England's roads accompanied by a phalanx of soldiers. Should they drop below the four mile an hour pace, they're shot. The last one survives and gains whatever his heart desires. Complicating this are the spectators who lie in the route cheering on their favorites and watching the others get shot, as well as internal rivalry, true love, and uh, a deeply screwed up dystopia. Uh, for such a simple idea, there's a lot going on here, and I'm delighted to be joined to discuss it by an expert, Julia Marchese. Well, hello. <laughs> hello, Julie. How are you? Please continue with description. I, I sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, no. Tell me, tell me if any, if any of this is incorrect or overstated. <laughs> Julia is an actress, documentarian, academic, and a podcaster, the co-host of one of my favorites, the Horror Movie Survival Guide. And perhaps even more appropriately, she's also the director and writer of a new film coming out soon, an adaptation of I Know What You Need from Stephen King's short story collection, Night Shift. It's one of the legendary Dollar Baby adaptations, and I'm very excited to talk about it. So, hello, Julia. Hello, so happy to be here. Um, with, with all my guests, I always give them the choice of what Stephen King novel, short story, or adaptation they want to um, talk about, and you've chosen The Long Walk. Uh, and I, I'm sure that's uh, resounded well with a lot of people, because it's, it's one of the... Um, one of the earliest King stories, and it's one that a lot of people read when they're very young and it immediately grips them. But what is it about The Long Walk that uh, kind of gripped you? 
I think it's really my top five for me. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's so good because for me, all I want in a story is character, you know, and, and the plot's kind of incidental, you know, I, really you're just following these characters you like. And, and, and so I think, you know, King does that so well is giving you these characters you care about. And this is the ultimate where it's just characters. Like they're really, I mean, there is a plot they're walking along, but there isn't really one, right? It's just characters following this road. And to so bold to write a novel like that, where it's not hinging on plot at all. It's really just hinging on characters. And he really gives you the depth of characters that I want in a story. And I feel like this more than anything is proof that character is all you need to make any sort of piece of artwork. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's almost postmodern, isn't it? And it's kind of disregard for narrative. Because you immediately, well, not immediately, but you know very soon what's going to happen. You know that most of these boys are going to die. So it's just a question of how do they, how do they get from there to the end? How, how, how do their lives play out in this short period of time? Nobody's going to start a revolution. Nobody's going to you know, change the rules of the game. It's, uh, they're, they're fated to death. So like you say, all you have is the characters and just putting one foot forward in front of the other. So well, when did you first read The Long Walk? Uh, I read it a couple of years ago. I um, had been on a quest to read everything uh, he's written, uh, which I am almost done with. I am just finishing The Dark Tower right now. Um, So everything else I've done. And so this was one of the ones that, you know, I was just plowing my way through everything. And I really like early Bachman. I think, I think I, I really like road work. I really like rage. I think that they're the, the fascination running man the, with just one character is really what does this for me. Just like watching this character disintegrate, which I feel like all four of those books is really kind of what that is. Um, you just have this one main character and you're watching him down this road of insanity. Um, and I think that, it, you know, for me to think of this being the first novel he ever wrote is like, so incredibly mind-blowing I can't even tell you like so crazy this one is so good um and I like to I like to think this is this is Julia wishful thinking but uh when I was making I Know What You Need I made it at the University of Maine and I stayed in the dorm room that Stephen King lived in when he was at the University of Maine where he maybe could have uh written The Long Walk in that very room I would just like to think that that's the room and I get very excited about that (laughs) Yeah, that, that would that would have given me chills just to be in there. That's it's quite incredible. Has it changed much since uh, 1966? No. Do you think? No, and that's the thing is like it looks exactly the same. They they haven't changed anything. And that's the thing that's great about it is it you know because the film my film's set in 1976, so mm. this looks like the 70s. It's fantastic. Two thumbs up. Wonderful. So like like you touched uh, upon slightly in your answer, this book and all the back of the books, they are incredibly angry. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're very much the work of an angry young man. And they're also the work of an extraordinarily assured writer. Like I say, it's quite incredible to think that that's his first book because the characters seem so vivid. The dialogue is just so kind of snappy and believable and so, I don't know, clever without being too clever. It's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, which which one which one of these characters who will leap off the page kind of appeal to you most of all? Oh my goodness, I don't know. I feel like I you know you you can't help but be in Garrity's shoes, right? I mean, the whole hmm. book is through his point of view and getting to see how sad it is to watch all these people disintegrate and you know be and going through this this whole you know how long it takes and how everybody starts to break down and watching all that is is so fascinating but everybody's doing it in their own personal way which is how life works right everybody's brain breaks differently so to Mm. watch people do that 
through uh, this one character's eyes, I think is so fascinating. I mean, but I love McBride's, um, Stebbins fucking cool. Like what's his deal? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's interesting because it is like that metaphor for life, isn't it? Because they kind of start off as children and they end up aging and it's like how they kind of handle themselves along the way and i feel like that's a lot of king, that's a lot of king's books right as you have these children that start out very innocent and by the end they're kind of hardened because of what they've had to go through oh yeah like mark petrie in salem's lot who kind sure. of starts out as this kind of nerdy monster kid but in the end it's, it's like he's a vampire killer moving from town to town it's it's quite uh quite terrifying in a way isn't it <laughs> <laughs> that's what horror does to you man it takes that kid right out of you <laughs> exactly <laughs> And it is kind of one of those kind of early Stephen King books, which is so kind of obsessed with the idea of um, coming of age. You know, it's up there with It and Firestarter. These kind of the, these kids who are asked to take on adult responsibilities, essentially. But I think and that I, the I reason that, that the, the dialogue that I think that you mentioned that works so well in this, I think it's because he's not that far from being a teenager himself, right? He's probably mm. is a teenager, probably 19 was writing this. So I feel like it's one of those things when you have someone who's a really young writer, it either sounds kind of trite or it sounds right on. Like I think of S.E. Hinton, who wrote The Outsiders, right? She was 16 mm. when she wrote that. And you're like, yeah, it sounds like 16 year old talking. That's why it works. And I feel like this is kind of the same as that you have that very angry young man thing. And especially growing up in this time period where he is, where you have the Vietnam War kind of lurking over your shoulder, which I feel, feel like echoes in this a lot. Oh yeah, there's 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 a lot to be said for uh, seeing this as a metaphor for Vietnam. I mean, and I see we've read Hearts in Atlantis. Yes, which kind of touches on this this from this the same idea of the kind of a generation of young men, boys essentially, who are kind of literally being put forward by society to probably die in a rather kind of horrible way, and even to the point where they both kind of have a draft system. Yes. So there's a bit about the major. He goes on television and he reads out the names of the the primes, like the, the the original first picks for the long walk. And it's the same as the draft, isn't it? Except they're volunteering for this. So yeah. it's it's kind of a bizarre dissonance between like sure, but a lot of people volunteer to go to Vietnam. You know, like there's so even though you volunteer, it doesn't mean that when you got there you were happy with what you saw. Well, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering about the time frame on this because '66, it would have still been volunteers. I think I'm not sure when the draft was introduced. I think it was actually slightly after this. So, it, it what what is it about the volunteering that you think? Well, why do these kids do it then? I I don't know. I mean, I mean, this is the whole question that they talk about in this in this story, right? Like everybody's questioning what the fuck did they do this for? Because clearly mm. they realize there's a point where it's like, oh, it's kind of fun. People are cheering us on. And but then they get to this point where like, oh, no, I've just I've done something terrible. I've made a terrible mistake. And all of them <laughs> coming to this terms with this and like, how do you why did I do this to myself? I had this life and especially Garrity, who's, you know, I have my mother and I have my girlfriend and, you know, everything seems to be going on the outside pretty OK. But then you also have this backstory with Garrity with his father taken away by the squad. And what does that mean? And like, so, you know, this alluding to this whole other dystopian future that's surrounding this story, right, that they barely even touch on, which is, to, for me, probably the, one of the most fascinating things about the story is just how there's these slight differences that King lets you know that you're not in a normal universe, yeah, it's a very deft bit of world building, isn't it? I mean, what, what are some examples that you kind of spotted that made you think, I mean, apart from the long walk itself, that right. made you think it's, it's kind of a, 
I don't know, a, a parallel world and alternate universe. Something oh, like there's that. so many. And they made me so like, this is, this is, you have to understand about me, Richard is like, I read Stephen King's books with a highlighter when anything comes up that is connected to the dark tower that I, that I highlight and I put a little notepad in. So like I read reading the, I've read the long walk a couple of times, but to read it very academically and to really try to like point out all of the little bits made me very, very happy. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> and a lot of them are, are quite subtle, right? We have uh, April 31st really subtle. Yep. Um, uh, there's 50, mm-hmm. 51 states. Um, they, he talks mm-hmm. about the, the dime has the Potomac river on the back. So that's like mm-hmm. a weird alternate one. Uh, they talk about the German air blitz of the America's American East coast during the last days of world war II. So that's like, Oh, okay. We're in a different timeline then. Um, and then the one that I like, this one was very, let me know what you think about this one. Um, they pass a building during the long walk where it says government sales building with a large May is confirm your sex month sign. Mm. It's like, huh. I can't, yeah, and one. then it's like, I can't quite <laughs> place what like weird alternate universe they're in. What does that mean? Like, yeah, I, I think probably when I first read that, I thought it was probably something to do with uh, gender or sexuality. But then I thought maybe it's to do with uh, birth. Maybe they're trying to confirm the sex of fetuses so they have more boys or more girls according to the uh, the needs oh. of the society at the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, didn't, think, I, I, thought, some... I thought it was some sort of weird sexuality thing, right? Where you just like confirm it one way or the other or down the middle. But I'm like, this is 1966. This is pretty, pretty radical thinking. But this is, you know, you're living in this world where anything goes, right? Because it's not the real world. You've set it in this alternate universe where, yeah, you can have confirm your sex month if you want. And everybody goes, okay, because it's no <laughs> rules. <laughs> Yeah, and that's it's kind of that's a that's another one of those kind of interesting bit of world buildings. It, it it's done so subtly that you don't kind of immediately realize it's kind of what kind of dystopia it is. It's not like the Handmaid's Tale, right? Where it's kind of overtly religious, but there is that idea that there is this kind of puritanical thing going on, and also a very militaristic government. Right. The major isn't like uh, he's not a political figure, but he does seem to have this totemic quality in society doesn't he yeah what what what, what can we deduce about the world that the long walk takes place in so how bad bad has it gone you know i mean obviously it's gone quite bad but it's you know it's gone quite bad in a quite short amount of time because if if Mm -hmm. we're just talking about america was blitz in world war ii so you're talking about okay now it's the 60s so it's only been 20 years since the war right so this one generation of how fast can the world turn over? But it seems like something where, you know, the the military, the U.S. military won. And so now they run the country, it seems like. They seem to be have more power than the government because the government's really never mentioned in this that I can recall. Not really. There's, there's a corporate governor in, in the state, but that seems like a, that's, that's a made up term. That That's not an actual kind of political term. It's a corporate mm-hmm. governor of Maine. So, and again, the corporate thing, I don't know, maybe thinking in terms of the military industrial complex that would, people were talking about at the time that was kind of getting so um, pervasive in society. But I like that he just kind of teases you with it, right? He's like, oh, there's 51 yeah. states, but he doesn't go into explaining what they are or what that means. And we don't really ever get any kind of backstory in the major, really. We just have this, you know, this figurehead, but we really don't know what his deal is at all. But we know we know he's he's got the, well we know that he might have uh, illegitimate children that he does not acknowledge. Well, we do know that. You're, you're, you're Mr. Stebbins, of course. <laughs> of course. A lovely, lovely bit of backstory, a lovely bit of motivation for Stebbins there. And he's so great. I love that he's just the, 
wild card. I think that that yeah. you know that really you really need one of those. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I'm kind of the, the the characters do fall into um, archetypes, isn't it? So you've got the you've got the moose, you've got Scram, who's kind of the uh, the early favorite. Who's he's a bit like um, Lenny from Mice and Men. He's he's, he's kind of just this mm. natured lumber who's just kind of lumbering along. Or, or, Tom, or Tom from The Stand. Yeah, but I did kind of think of him as Tom from The Stand as well. Absolutely, and he's kind of this innocent, but he's also Unlike the rest of the walkers, he's married and he's got a child on the way, which is kind of this bizarre kind of twist because we think of them as boys, but they're on that cusp of manhood. I mean, did did did, did Scram, was he a favorite for you? No, I don't think so. But I mean, because he just seemed on the fringe a bit. And I, but it's mm. that one of those things where, it, and I think the, the boys kind of feel this way too, towards him as well. They're like, what, what, are you, what are you doing here, man? Why did you do yeah. that to your wife and kid? Why, you know, all of them have girlfriends and parents and stuff, but they feel like they, you know, and they do take up the collection to, to help them out, you know, after he's hit, after he dies, but it is this extra level of what the fuck would you do that for? <laughs> Cause it's not just about you anymore. Right now it's about mm-hmm. your son or daughter, whoever coming out later. Yeah. Well, that, that's, I think that for me, that was one of the main themes in, in the novella is, is nihilism. The idea that, these boys, they don't really have anything going on. They have kind of nothing in their lives. And there's obviously some kind of fear of the future that they don't want to confront that makes them do this suicidal thing. And it's the same with the society in general. It seems quite nihilistic because the whole country watches or comes out to watch young men getting killed. And it's a sport to them. It doesn't really mean anything to them in terms of a moral or ethical action. It's It's just a sport that uh, $10 billion are wagered on in Las Vegas every year. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he and he really started that whole, uh, you know, game show killing for sport kind of thing, you know, with this and the running man, which, of course, mm. you know, goes on to Battle Royale and Hunger Games and Squid Game and all that. Um, but I, f- I feel like it's not that far fetched, honestly. You know, if you look at I, I mean, it's horrible to say, but it's true. But, you know, you, you look at hundreds of years ago when people will go to watch hangings or guillotines, like people kind of are into that sick stuff. And I feel like, it, it you know, if you had a reality show where you know where people were getting killed people would watch and it's horrible to say but it's true so there was actually there was a movie called series seven which is about that which is about like a reality show where people get killed yeah the contenders i remember that one that Mm -hmm. was a good one but yeah and uh, yeah it's um it was also like rollerball and things like that and it's interesting that this this is the one that kind of starts it off really this is like Mm -hmm. the Without this, we wouldn't have the Hunger Games, would we? I think it's it's very much a... Well, I mean, if you talk, talk about how much we wouldn't have if Stephen King didn't exist, I mean, that's a far, <laughs> far-flung net. Let's just say that. Stranger Things, I'm looking at you. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you think is... Because, I mean, it's a terrifying thought that not only does this happen, but the society kind of needs this to happen. Right. And what, what did you make of that as being like... Is, is it like... Um, like a collective thing that they kind of have to do this release of violence. So, or is it like a thing where it's more like Stalinist Russia and people are obliged to kind of go along with it. And if everybody like talks out of turn, they get squatted. I don't know. I feel like it, I feel like it's some of both, right? I think you'll have the people who are into it and I have the feel that the people who are genuinely into it, the people who will pretend to be into it, into it so they don't get in, co- in trouble and then the mm. people who you, who don't, who hate it, you know, and obviously we've learned in this world, if you are, 
vocal about hating it, they will take you away. So you have to kind of play along and pretend that you like it, even if you don't. So that's, I mean, that's part of the dystopian part of dystopia though, right? You go along, you're like, Hey, everything's fine. But, um, <laughs> but really it's really not fine. <laughs> but it, it does seem that the majority of people really respond to it. I mean, yeah. uh, Garrett, he talks later on about the idea of the people become the, the, the crowd. They become this one entity that is like angry and hungry and shouting and screaming. Sure. And I think it's just that idea, like I said, just society says, right, you can like enjoy this, this, this brutal, horrible thing and go as crazy as you want and then just pretend everything's okay and then everything's back to normal sure. and we all have jobs, lives, you know. Yeah, that kind well, of thing. you know, it's kind of like the purge, right? It's that kind of yeah. that, that one day where you get to let all the violence out and everybody's okay and then you go back to work the next day and it's all fine. But you know, if the purge was a real thing, people would go bananas. So <laughs> you're like, well, <laughs> I mean, but I think that's what Stephen King does so well is I think he, he shows us that humanity is really one tiny push away from just being chaos because you know mm -hmm. what he does in a lot of his books is he, he puts people in a situation where you take you take society away you take like mm -hmm. you know help away like the mist right you have all these people who are stuck in a supermarket and you just take take the goodness of society away and then people turn into animals and it happens immediately and it's terrifying and like that's what's so scary about humans is that they really like the society is is a very thin crust layer of politeness and then you like yank that out and you go oof animal instincts <laughs> coming right in there but i think it's interesting that he, he after this point he kind of i think he mellows out from that a lot because i mean you look at the running man and this book that the endings are very very dark i think uh running man he 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 pilots a plane into a building doesn't he to to, to shut off the signal of the the show that everybody's I like watching. how i like how bleak bachman is i really do i really like how <laughs> i mean for me though like the 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 more fucked up an ending is the more i'll like it so that's kind of okay. my 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 deal it's like oh everyone dies at the end yay i get excited <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose I kind of compare it to something like The Stand, which again has that like idea of like there's a terrible society and a good society, and then the good society kind of wins. You know, they, they they kind of beat the other one. But in the long walk, I mean, th this ending it's 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 um, I mean, what what do you think is actually happening? Because it's left very ambiguous as to whether um, Garrity is one, Garrity is dead, Garrity is insane, Garrity is. I don't know, just going to keep on walking forever because he, he has no life outside of just walking now. I mean, it's... Uh, it's, I, I, it's, it's I, read a, I read a little synopsis of this, which I think um, answers that quite well. Uh, it says, it says look, long walk is a fight to the death where whoever makes it out alive might be so irreparably damaged that he wishes he weren't alive at all. Mm. I was like, that kind of sums it up. But yeah, um, that, that, I think that's, that's kind of the idea that like, the, the people's ambitions... They start off like they think, oh, I'm going to win this and I'll be the one and I'll be rich and I'll you know, live in a mansion. And towards the end of it, the, the idea of what they'll win gets increasingly bizarre. It's like they, they just want to like not walk or Barkovitz wants a, a new pair of plastic feet. So he's going <laughs> to cut off his old feet, which are horribly mangled at this point. And he's just going to like have new feet. And it's the idea that like they don't know why they're doing it. It's another, it's another one of those things where even if they win, they probably wouldn't know what they want, you know? Sure. And they do. I mean, they do tease you with what the prize is for quite some time. Right. You don't really learn until kind of halfway through what they get. And then you go, OK, well, that sounds pretty good. But, you know, wouldn't you just say, I don't want the long walk anymore? I mean, you get sure. anything you want. Right. You could just say no more long walk. And I imagine I would imagine that there would be some stipulation in the contract about that. But you go or just kill the major. <laughs> kill him. Well, yeah, yeah, I think that that's what uh, one of the masks for, isn't it? I, yeah. you know, I want to 
kill the mater at the end. You know, I'm sure there'd be some uh, small print where it says, well, no, you can't really do that. And also, you can't really ask for a lot of money because we're told that millionaires are a thing of the past. Ah. So you assume there's some kind of cash limit where you can, you can only ask like a quarter of a million dollars or something well, like that. Well, come on now. Anything I want is different, different than that. <laughs> exactly. But I, I, you know, I do remember when I read this the first time that the ending was disappointing to me because I didn't, what I was so looking forward to is, you know, we have Olsen, who's this character who just um, descends into himself, right? And he says that he is a, he's a human flying Dutchman where he's just not there anymore. And like he's delved, and this is what Stepan keeps, keeps going on so, so much about. It's like, you have to delve deeper and deeper into yourself. Like, when do you hit bottom? So, you know, we have this jump forward in time at the end of the book where I really was hoping we were going to get that with Garrity, where we're really going to go in because we like we jump forward and he's gone. Like he's gone from, you know, he's so he's hurting, but he's there until we jump forward and he's at the end and he's just like out to lunch. So this was something that I really we know that King can write mental deterioration. We've seen him do it before. And like that's what I wanted to see is how far Garrity goes into himself, because what this book is, is just inside of his head. So uh, that was not given to me. And I was like, oh, that's what I wanted, yeah. though. You know, and I was like, no, I don't know. But I was the only one who wanted that. But then I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I know what you mean. And it, it is one of the things he does really well is to write that kind of mental and physical deterioration, isn't it? It's, it's, it's kind of like Dante, like descending further and further mm-hmm. into hell and getting increasingly more damned as you do. Yes. And like I said, a lot of the boys are left described as being like skulls on sticks and they take off their clothes. They shed these civilized things that they have until they're just like walking skeletons. And it's hard not to see like that as being referencing things like the Holocaust, really. Mm. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard not to kind of see that as like the ultimate in evil of what man can do to man, or in this case, what people can be persuaded to do to themselves. Mm-hmm. It really is extraordinarily dark, isn't it? It is. And I, at the ending, I couldn't really say what I think happens. You know, some people some people have said that they think that he's walking towards the man in black, which I think is trying a little hard on the Dark Tower thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, OK. But, you know, it's either he's walking towards death or he's walking towards insanity, really, one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and either one of them are, you know, gleefully satisfying in that grim Julia kind of way. So I, you know, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> is he sane? Is he dead? one or the other okay great happy or he's walking towards some kind of uh, ambiguous multifaceted kind of father figure that he's looking out for mm-hmm. because i think that's kind of another thing that garrity has is that kind of father complex where he doesn't have one but he he looks up to the other boys he kind of finds that kind of companionship in the other boys and in the major as well of course I mean, it's, it's also a testament of how harsh teenage boys are because all of these boys are really they can see the other's problems, right? So yeah. they will point out everybody else's problems to them. And it's, and it's this very, like, teenage boys are terrifying. They're so mean, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, this is really how it would go, though. Teenage boys are mean. It would go bad. <laughs> you, you, you don't think they would, like, do a, like, um, like a separate long walk for, for, for girls, for young girls? I feel like the girls would be much nicer. Let's just be fair. <laughs> Okay. I think girls, A, I think girls would not be stupid enough to do this. And B, I feel like they would, like, the girls enough, would be yeah. much more helpful to each other, I feel like. And the, I mean, they are helpful to each other here. I mean, McFry's does help out Garrity a whole bunch of times and they really become um, 
compatriots, which I think is a nice touch in this to have somebody who, uh, but also, you know, we haven't mentioned uh, that our friend Garrity is also a, a bisexual hero. Um, we have, yep. cause he and, he and McBride's maybe have a liking for each other. And I'm like, I like that it's in there and it's, it's part of like why we think Garrity might be confused, but that is also dealt with a little bit. I like that. Mm. It, it's not yeah, it's needed for this character, but I feel like it's an added layer for this character. Yeah, it's 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 there are some very nice, subtle kind of references to the fact that he is obviously very attracted to or rather he idolizes his girlfriend a great deal. But he finds it a lot easier to to talk to other boys and he kind of studies their physique and looks at them and kind of builds up relationships with them very quickly, particularly to Bryce, as, as you say. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting that it's never really you you assume it's 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 in a society where that kind of thing is kind of frowned on, but people do discuss it quite openly. They talk about the two front runners being they they say they're queer for each other, and it mm-hmm. and it's like the idea. Of, it's it's not like a judgment thing. It's just and he's kind of says, yeah, well, so what? You know, so what? It doesn't matter. But it does seem like a like an interesting. I don't know. It's it's the the society they're in is quite schizophrenic in a way, because it is militaristic and it does seem very hard. But then it also seems quite libidinous in other ways as well like women are waiting at the side of the road to have sex with the walkers and they're kind of they're, they're flashing and it doesn't seem like a big deal it seems mm-hmm. like a weird it's schizophrenic society which is probably why it's insane which is probably why because <laughs> it, it doesn't know what it is does any society know what it is though come on now uh, no, <laughs> that's a good point. No, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I think every society is pretty schizophrenic. <laughs> that's a good point. But this is so, this is this is one that I feel like I would like to. This uh, particular universe is one that I would like to spend more time in with Stephen King. Mm-hmm. If he said, if he went back to this universe and did something else with it, I think it would be really interesting because I would like to see how different this America is. Right. It's it seems to be completely different. And but we're only getting like bearing barely scratching the surface of what's different about it. Mm, absolutely. No, I, 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 I think it's very unlikely we'll we'll kind of see a, a prequel or a sequel to this one. But like I say, it is those tantalizing clues that make you just want to immerse yourself in this world, isn't it? And I think that's probably part of the appeal. That's probably why it's, it's kind of been so popular with people. So let's let's say uh, Julia Marchese, uh, yeah. a podcaster, documentarian, filmmaker, and actress. You, you, you're you're on the you you you're on the long walk. Okay. Okay. How how far do you think you get? Are you are you kind of uh, <laughs> are you going to be like in the the last the last twenty? No, I'm going to be the one. Are you going to give up? It, early? Yeah, immediately I would be like, sit down, fuck it. No, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I would That's never be stupid enough to do something like this in the first place. But if I was, because I know I've always joked that if I was in an apocalyptic scenario, like a zombies or plague or whatever, I would just mm-hmm. take myself out immediately. I'm like, I don't want to live through that, man. That's going to be terrible. What's on the other side of that? Nothing good. So it's not like you're living for something fun. So I feel for this, you just be like, oh, fuck it, forget <laughs> it. I'm, I'm tired. I think I would try to take people out with me. I think I think the, the climb in the tank to try to take the, some of the soldiers out is the way to go. You but won't this- succeed, but you're going to die either way. This is this is my second uh, quick fire question. I mean, uh, who who was the best death scene? Would you say? Oh, in, uh, oh well, couldn't you just like in run into walk? the crowd though? Well, no, they talk about that. Apparently, the crowd would just bounce you back. 
They'll just oh. like throw, throw you back into the room. They'll, they'll, they'll kind of trampoline you back, which is rather depressing. You didn't. What, what is yours? What is your answer? What would you do? How long would um, you survive? Oh God, not long. I, I hate walking. Oh God, I'm <laughs> very lazy. Uh, I don't know. Um, well, let me think. If you know, the average person can walk what four miles in an hour? Is that correct? Was it two hours? Uh, I'd probably be dead within about half an hour i reckon yeah no, that, that that would about do it <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd i'd probably try the food and the the, the processed oh, uh, oh that sounds so terrible doesn't it meat like paste and tubes of crackers tuna. And <laughs> I, I would just want to die i would just that this is i i don't know why you wouldn't just bring a big fucking backpack full of food that's what i would do because you'd be eating it off anyway right like it would be heavy when you first started but you'd be it'd be getting less as you went along well, you, you assume there are, there are some kind of rules. I was all, I'm always surprised when uh, Stebbins pulls out like a second pair of shoes. Because mm. he's got moccasins and he's got, uh, I think, tennis shoes. I think that, that's probably a really good idea, isn't it? That, that, that's probably the one you really want to go for. Yeah. And then eating ground raw ground beef. You're just like, what are you doing with that, man? And just bring some like nice sandwiches. Like, <laughs> no, because Stebbins has sandwiches, right? He has a bunch of yeah. like sandwiches. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it, it's... They discuss, well, Garrity wonders who made the sandwiches for him. Right. Because there's, there's this big deal about mothers giving food to people. Like he has cookies, but then, then you know kind of the step in his parentage is so kind of strange that did he make oh. them himself? Because he, he appears so kind of sweet, generous. He's like just a completely outside character. You just imagine him like making those sandwiches and turning up and just being like, here we go. What about a Stebbins spinoff where you could learn the prequel of Stebbins? Like, what is he like before this? I would be into that. Sure, yeah, hanging around the major's house, try, trying to be noticed. No, I, I imagine that that's probably quite, <laughs> probably quite poignant. Yeah, absolutely. I bet, he, I bet he's got a cool story. He's, <laughs> he's a cool, no, he's a really cool character. And I feel like he's so, you know, and, the, and they really, you know, King paints him to be outside of everybody else. But he really does seem different from everybody else that he has this. And it's not just... I mean, it is the knowledge that he really feels like he's going to win, right? Because mm. he's like, I have a better, a better reason to win than anybody else. Mm. But there's also some other kind of, I think being the major son all this time has twisted him some way where he's not normal at all. So I feel oh, like yeah. there's this like such, so I think he has so much more hate than all of them as well. And he comes across as very calm and good natured, but like down deep down, I think he's probably the angriest of any of them. Yeah, well, it's 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 implied that the major is a, like a state-sanctioned psychopath, so you kind of assume that his son will be equally uh, mentally deranged at this point, particularly because he's not even acknowledged as being his son. Right, but you would imagine that a figure like the major would have illegitimate children all over the place. Yeah, no, yeah, I think that that yeah, that's implied in the book, absolutely. Yeah, like I say, he appears to be this very upright character, but you know, who knows what's going on? And that that is, of course. American foreign policy at the time. <laughs> or uh, <They're>, always. <laughs> yeah, they were in Vietnam to win hearts and minds, but also were burning down villages and uh, it's, it's getting pretty gruesome out there. You know, yeah. it's, uh, it's pretty horrible. But going back to my question, who, who, who dies the best in, in, in your opinion in, in this book? Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I like, uh, it's Parker who jump who, who jumps on the, on the, on the tank, right. tries to take him down. Yeah. Um, I think that one, I think, you know, I, I love, I love a good punk rock. Fuck you at the end. It's heroic. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, and you know, and there is that kind of sad Stebbins O'Garrity at the end, which is, you know, mm. kind of heartbreaking, but I think, I think trying to take some people down with you is the way to go. Exactly. What about no, you? I, um, I like, Ooh, golly. I like uh, Scrum 
and the Hopi Indian boy. I think it's Joe. Because okay. I like the fact that they just go on together and just sit down. Yeah. And he says they're talking to each other, but not in the same language. There's a beautiful moment where these these two boys who completely different from the same place, but completely different, are finding some kind of mutual end there. And it seems mm-hmm. very peaceful in a way. Mm-hmm. Plus, they also say, I think, like, like I fucked your mother or something to the <laughs> to the guys on the half track. So you got you got you, you got the punk rock thing, but you've also got that mellow thing. Yeah. And also, and also Barkovitz, I think, has got a fascinating mm-hmm. death sequence because he he in a way, they're all committing suicide, but he literally commits to committing suicide. He tears out his own throat. Yeah. Which I think I think that's a physical impossibility, actually, but it's just such a... I wouldn't I mean, put it past someone in some sort of <laughs> strange state, man. Like, there's a lot of stuff that Stephen King does that I thought was was a joke. And, like, I like hair turning white overnight. That can totally fucking happen. Yeah, absolutely. That can really happen. So they're like, oh, it sounds like a, like a, you're far-fetched. But I'm like, no, you know, if someone was in a bad enough state, tearing out your throat might... might might happen. It's yeah, pretty gruesome, but it's not. And it's something that's so unexpected, right? Cause he's kind of in this trance yeah. and then it just stumbles out of it into this horrible thing that no one could expect, which is kind of sort of Garrity's fault a little for, a little. for, for bugging him, but it really, he just talked to him. It wasn't like he did anything terrible. Yeah. I think Barkovitz is a very interesting character. I, I have, I have a, quite a bit of sympathy for him because really he's such yeah. an asshole. Well, that's the thing, but he's like, He's always been an asshole. He never fitted in anywhere. And and when he goes on this long walk, he's kind of the only person, probably apart from Stebbins, who's kind of openly facing the truth that, you know, he wants other people to die so he can win. That's his point. He says, well, you know, good, you're going to die. So I'm a little closer to getting what I want. And all the others are somewhat ambiguous about that. They're still trying to help each other. They're still trying to be the three musketeers. They're still like trying to aid each other. But Barkovitz is is kind of a, He's a realist. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a racist and a horrible prick, but he is an openly insane person in an openly insane situation, you know? That's a good way to put it. And he also yeah. has that moment at the end where he's like, why doesn't anybody like me? I just want you yeah. to like me. And you're like, well, but I think that, you know, deep down, you know, because he comes off as like a big bully, right? And you feel like any yeah. bully deep down, all they really want is to be liked. And so like, I think everything they try to do is just this kind of anger at not being liked. So I feel like that you actually do strip away and see that real basic, just please like me at the end of it. And everyone's like, no, you're horrible. Fuck off. <laughs> exactly. No, we're not going to like you after all you've done. Are you kidding me? But I think that's, you know, that, I think it's a very sweet moment from a very mean person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, that is, again, that is a, uh, the genius of the writing and the the unexpected genius of writing from a guy who's like 18 is it, it does have that that nuance it does have that kind of ambiguous nature to a lot of the people in there that one moment they can be quite heroic and the next moment they can be quite conniving and because they're all in extremis because they're all undergoing this thing you get to see like every side of every character sure and i can only imagine you know if you you know something if we, if we translate this over to Vietnam and you have these same group of boys who are in a company together. And it's the same thing, right? Where you're getting to know these people who are kind of your life depends on and how their personality is going to affect your life, right? Mm. Because it's everybody's kind of working together in this way where people's deaths do mean your life, but not in a, I don't know. It's a very, it's, I can see the metaphor working quite well. Oh yeah. And it's also a good metaphor for like militaristic training because that is the idea of 
you know, you just march, you go in one right. direction. And you have a number. All together. And you, yeah, you're, you're kind of uh, de-personified. You become the, just this, this unit. Yeah. And that's, that's what kind of strips away this humanity and enables you to, uh, like I say, burn down those villages and uh, mm. massacre the, uh, the civilians. So that, that, that's what does it to you. It's, it's, and I'm sure King probably saw that in the people around him, you know, the people signing oh, up. Oh, I'm sure. The and then, yeah, undergoing the training and then coming back as, as different people. It's, 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 it's got to be the case, right? Sure. I can't imagine having to be his age, being in a place where like, it's not that far-fetched, that would be me. Mm. Like, if, if, you know, if I dropped out of college, that could be me. That kind of feeling of uh, immediacy that we, you and I will never understand. Sure. And it's, it's also the idea that they were seeing death at the time on television they were seeing right. the bodies coming back from vietnam they were seeing you know the the holocaust footage and we don't really kind of do that these days i mean we know there's people getting killed in the ukraine but we don't really see the bodies very often we don't actually see that proximity to death that probably king had that understanding of it mm. which is a depressing. yes uh, stop killing each other guys can we just say yeah, that yeah. please please stop <laughs> killing each other no no yeah. need for death we can read about death that reading about death is fine but let's yeah. not really do it i don't care how controversial this makes the episode but yeah i'm, I'm against war you know i mean I, yeah. <laughs> world peace right that's controversial <laughs> try and try and cancel me I, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna speak my mind i don't like i don't like vladimir putin and if he and if he's listening to this just pack it in okay just stop it He's, he's probably not listening. I, I, I think he prefers... They're the, always uh, listening, Richard. They're always I, listening. I think he prefers the Fangoria Stephen King podcast, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's just what I heard. So um, a couple more questions about the long... Well, one more question about the long... I really want to ask you. Yeah. Uh, you, Julia Marchese, are a yeah. filmmaker. How, how tempting is it? Is it, is, it, um, is it one of those unrealized projects for you that if you had the funding, you would make the long walk film? Or do you think it's one of those ones that's better left on the page? I can't imagine how you would do a very faithful adaptation of this. Mm. It would be very, very hard because it's so much in characters' heads. Mm. Um, I would personally feel like it, it, if you were to ask me, do I want to make the long walk? Yes, of course I want to make the long walk. Of course I do. Yes, it's amazing. It's one of my favorites. Of course I do. But would the thought also absolutely terrify me? Yes, because mm. this is such an incredible book and to get it wrong would be a, a real shame. And you know, I know that, uh, you know, Frank Darabont almost did this. I know George Romero almost did this. And like, those are things like those guys could do this. I give mm. faith in those guys. Me? Mm. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if I'm ready for it, but I would give it my best shot. I just don't know how you, I mean, unless you're really, really focusing a lot on voiceover, I don't really know how you would do it because it's yeah. so much about how he's feeling and what it is inside. And it's really his, you know, mental deterioration, right? Because this isn't this, they talk about very early, like this, it's not a strong man contrast. It's not necessarily the strongest guy is going to win. It's who's mentally going to outlast the others. So mm -hmm. this is how do you show mental deterioration on screen? It's a, I, that would be a very interesting project. I don't know how I would do it. How would you do it? I don't know. It's an interesting one because you kind of, you'd have to, get all your actors and then like starve them for a couple of weeks just so you could film it, wouldn't you? Because they deteriorate so rapidly and it, it, it's, it's not really something you can do with special effects because they lose their muscle mass. They grow so kind of ragged and so, I'm not quite sure how to describe it. So, so, so deathly throughout the course of this, you couldn't just do it in CGI. I don't know. I mean, 
the temptation would be to either do it as um, a very long, like a, a series, and then you could see it from different people's perspectives. Perhaps. Ooh, that'd be cool. Like a Rushmon thing. Yeah, kind of, I like that. You'd have like, uh, you know, Parker's episode, Garrity's episode, and at the end, I suppose you'd have that kind of climax. But then, I don't know who who would who would you choose, and would you have like their their backstories? How much would you want to show? Because one of my favorite parts of the book is Devere is talking about his um, his relationship with Pris, because that's one of the few times in the book that you actually get a bit of extended backstory about him working in this pajama factory in Newark. And it seems like a like a Bruce Springsteen song. It's, it's yeah. a really lovely, really lovely little sequence. But you don't really like hear that from it from anybody else, just hints. So And I like that. I would I would actually, if they did a if you did a series like that, I would rather they didn't do a bunch of backstory. Um mm. I feel like the sparseness of it is quite nice. But you know, that, that being said, I did say I wanted to see a spinoff. So that's kind of the same thing. I don't know. Give me, you know, the, the thing about it that is glorious is that it's so self-contained. But then, of course, that always makes me go. But I just want more because it's so good. <laughs> exactly. I want, yeah. I want. And you're right. This is not a, a universe he is likely to ever return to in his works. And I know that. But in my heart, I go, but but more, please. <laughs> more, please. Okay. So, again, talking about filmmaking, you are the uh, writer and director and editor as well of uh, the producer, not editor. Producer, not editor of the forthcoming uh, Dollar Baby adaptation of "I Know What You Need." Uh, firstly, uh, I'm sure the listeners probably have a fair idea about this already. But what is the Dollar Baby initiative? So, Dollar Baby is a program that Stephen King has been doing for decades, which is just he has certain short stories of his that you can buy the rights for one dollar for one year and then you can make a film of it. It is 45 minutes or under is the stipulation. And then it's nonprofit, non-broadcast. So you can't sell it or broadcast it anywhere. But it's for you to be able to tell the story and for you to put in film festivals and private screenings. And the coolest thing is that in the contract, his, uh, you have to send a copy to Stephen King to watch because mm. he wants to see what people do with his work, which is fascinating. He doesn't have to do that, man. He's been doing this for how long? And like, he doesn't have to, but he wants to. And I think that's so fascinating. So for me, knowing, making this movie and knowing the end game is Stephen King actually watches this movie is bananas. That's and he's going to, cool. I, I imagine if nothing else, all I'm aiming for is a, Hey, when he sees that I'm filming in his dorm room, like that's all yeah. I need. If I get a hey, I'll be happy. <laughs> a, a hey of recognition. But we filmed, you know, all the places. The story takes place at the University of Maine. And so we filmed in all the places he mentioned. So the dorms are the dorms, the library is the library. It's all right there. And they all really haven't changed since the 70s. So it looks pretty much as it would have when he went there uh, not that long ago. So why did you choose this particular story? I know what you need. This, you know, I'm I'm much more of a novel than a short story girl. I always really like uh, longer delves, delving in, into characters. But um, I've read, you know, as I said, I've read everything. So I've read all of the short story books. And this one just from it's the beginning. I was like, oh, because the character when you the first paragraph is describing Edward, who's the, the lead boy in this in this story. And they describe him as, a, you know, he's wearing fatigue jacket. It's too big for him. And his socks don't match. And he's like got glasses, unkempt hair. And I went, oh, 
oh, hi, like that description. <laughs> I was like, oh, like that was my kind of boy, which is crazy because nobody should like this kind of boy. But I kind of fell for Edward and then went along with this story uh, and with the character of Elizabeth and then trying to, because you know something's wrong. It's a Stephen King story. Something's up. There's, you know, he has nefarious purposes, but you don't know what they are. And I'm like, maybe they're not so bad. Um, but I think that the thing that for me is the most interesting thing about this story is you have a character who has powers and in most Stephen King work, you have something like Firestarter or Dead Zone or mm. Dr. Sleep, where they have these enormous psychic powers that they use for huge things, right? Like stopping government agencies and stopping catastrophes and doing this whole big thing. But Edward, all he wants to do is to make one person fall in love with him. Like there's something really kind of beautiful and romantic in that no matter how fucked up it is, and it is <laughs> fucked up, of course it is. But like there's something really interesting about that that one mindedness that like that's all that you're going to use these powers for so was that a difficult role to cast then because it sounds yeah. quite uh, yeah 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 you definitely charming but also quite yeah creepy <laughs> yeah so you know it's someone and he goes in the movie from kind of weirdo to romantic lead to monster more or less and it was something that i was very nervous to cast and it was also you know, I was casting during the pandemic. So I was casting on Zoom and like doing chemistry reads on Zoom and that kind of thing. But I think that, and, and I also didn't want it to be, uh, so the vibe of the movie is after school special meets Brian De Palma. I didn't want <laughs> it to be super dark and creepy. So like, I don't want you to meet Edward and have Edward be like super dark and creepy because that's not, there's no fun. Like let's get to the, let's have some, some beautiful seventies romance before we get to the, to the climax. But uh, William Champion who plays Edward killed it. I cannot wait for you to see his performance. He is fantastic. All of the actors are really, really great, but he really did such a good job of bringing Edward to life. I think people are going to be uh, really amazed. Very cool. So uh, you say you've already shot all of it. Are you in mm -hmm. post-production at the yes. moment? I am. Yeah. Post-production takes a long time. So we, uh, editing has been done, but we are waiting on sound correction, color correction, and music. My brother is doing the music. He also did the music for my documentary out of print. And so the music's being done, being finished up right now and everything's coming together. It's just taken, taken some time, but I think everyone is going to be really pleased with the results. I know I am. So can you give us a tentative date when we might be able to see this at, uh, at your local film festival? Uh, no, I, I can't do that. <laughs> I don't know. Fair enough. Okay, no, that's fine. <laughs> It'll be done sometime and then we'll start submitting to film festivals and then um, we'll see what happens. It's very exciting. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite stories. Is it? What do you like about it? I love, well, I love the setting. I love the academia and I love the, the Lovecraftian touches and I love the... The, the kind of the, the mysterious book and all that. And I think it's just, it's, it's a very simple, very twisted story. And I, I, I think it, um, it's obviously something that was close to King's heart, I reckon. I think it's one that kind of, um, it's probably quite a personal one for him. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as I said, the Dollar Baby program has specific um, stories that you can ask for. And this story was not on that list. And so I asked kind of thinking that they would say no. And then they did say yes. And then they said later, like, I don't know why, because normally this is not one that he gives out. So I don't know something special. And I was like, Oh, I got something special. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, th I think he, I think he's looking back. I think he, I think he's, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of get you too excited, but I think he's as excited to see this film as you were to make it. I think he's going to love it. You know? <laughs> I hope so. I've definitely put 
you know, all of my heart and soul in it. And I think that's really all you can ask for, right. Is to, to see a film where you see that the filmmakers uh, definitely got a love for the subject. And I certainly do. And there's of course a thousand Easter eggs in there for all of my Stephen King fans, including you mentioned hearts in Atlantis earlier. Oh, yeah. uh, so Stokely has his jacket that he has the peace sign with the drawn on the back. That's yeah. the whole big thing where people haven't seen it before. So uh, Edward does there. He is described wearing a fatigue jacket in the story, but I've add the peace sign to the back to as a nice. nod to hearts in Atlantis. Love it. And you know, the King's pretty big on Twitter. So you might see uh I don't know, you might see a tweet one day just saying. Uh, he may have. I mean, I, I tag loved. him in, in, in posts. I mean, you never know. <laughs> we shall see. But in, until until we see the film, until we hear from Stephen King on the film, I understand you're also working with the George A. Romero Foundation now. What are you, what are you doing for the Garth? So we're doing a show. It's uh, the Garf and the Horror Movie Survivor Guide. My podcast together are producing a show called Horror X, which is all about females in the horror space. So we're going to be doing interview interviews with lots of exciting women in horror, um, actors and producers and writers and all sorts of fun people. And it's going to be a video show as well. So it'll be something that you'll be actually seeing my face as well as hearing my voice, which will be uh, new and exciting. Very cool. And uh, can you give us any uh, names about anybody you might have lined up? Uh, or not. <laughs> no, but I will say they're exciting. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> and uh, just to give us a quick uh, uh, rundown of the Horror Movie Survival Guide, which is one of my favorite podcasts I've been um, catching up with it recently. And it, we, we agree on pretty much uh, everything so far. Oh, all right. That's good to know. Particularly on how disappointing It Chapter 2, the film was. Oh, I'm glad you agree, man. Yeah, I that know. Was, that, was a, that was a heartbreaker, that was. I know. I, I was yeah. really, ex- really excited for that one. Um, Horror Movie Survival Guide, yes. So that's my podcast. We t- my best friend Terry and I break down uh, each a horror movie every week. Thank you for listening. And we are doing it. We're in the, right now in the middle of a round of collaborations. So we wanted to get together with some of our favorite podcasts. So we just talked to the Losers Club. Uh, we just mm-hmm. talked to... Um, Midnight Mass and review that review. And so we're doing, we have lots of other interviews coming up this year as well. And um, I am also doing, I'm just all speaking to Losers Club. I'm doing an episode about Stranger Things with them. Very and cool. then I also have a podcast, Jodorowsky, which is all about the works of Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, I'm a busy girl, you know, I get around, I talk about movies and uh, Stephen King a lot. I appreciate that. So, uh, f- final two questions that everybody gets asked. Firstly, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, I just finished uh, Gwendy's Final Task. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, we had Richard Chisma on the podcast last year. Oh, he cool. He gave us a few tantalizing clues about that. How was it? Uh, it was really good. Uh, lots yep. of full of sticky notes and highlighting. <laughs> so, you know, that's a good thing. Um, and then, yeah, and then I have about half of the, of the Dark Tower to read and then I'm done. And I've been putting it off and putting it off for four years because I just don't want to finish it because then it'll be done with it, but I have to finish it now. So am I, I, is that, am I the only one who does that? Um, like I can't finish it. I have to put it away. Is that weird? No, I think that that shows quite a uh, good self-discipline. I, 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 to I, pro- I prolong I it. it. I don't want it to be yeah. over. I, I'm more like, uh, I just gobble it up, you know, a new Stephen King book. I always think, well, I'm going to make this one last, but no, two days later, it's gone. <laughs> I've read it. It's done. And, and secondly, uh, the question I ask everybody, what is a book that you would recommend that maybe people haven't heard about, one that's maybe gone under the radar slightly? Uh, I would recommend a book called You Can't Win by Jack Black. 
not mm-hmm. that Jack Black. Uh, <laughs> it was written in the 20s and it's about a guy, a real life story, autobiography of a guy who was a, a thief and a hobo and turned prisoner, turned librarian. And he has this incredible view of this very specific point in American history where you have this, you know, hobo lifestyle of people riding the rails and people really being transients and what that's like and what, you know, he talks about prison and what that, what, you know, how prisons haven't really changed, which is very true. Uh, it's really fascinating, highly recommended. Nobody's read it and it's really great. Very cool. Is that, what's it called? You Can't Win. You Can't Win by Jack Black. I'm going to check that out. That sounds, that sounds like a, a good book. So it only remains for me to thank you, Julia Marchese, for coming on. And I will be letting people know when your film comes out and any other projects you've got coming up. Please let us know. Okay. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Um, and I probably should have pointed this out earlier, but I am uh, currently uh, doing uh, the, the long walk. And I, I've just received my my third warning. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 will be, I will be shot. I will be, I will be asking... My sound tech to, to put the sound effects of uh, uh, bullets coming in very, very quickly. And uh, yeah, well, I started doing bits at the end of the podcast. It's, it's not it's not a, it's not a hundred percent successful, obviously. But uh, no, I, I think this one, this was this one's very good. So thank you very much. We'll see you all again soon. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. After midnight. Thank you very much for joining us on another edition of the Constant Reader Podcast with me, your host, Richard Shepard. I'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Linda Shepard for research and Stephen Leslie Parks for technical production. You can write to us at the Constant Reader Podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at the Constant Reader Podcast. And please feel free to rate, review, like, and subscribe to this podcast on wherever you can find podcasts. And we'll see you again next month and every other month for another deep dive into the work of Stephen King. Thank you very much. Searching for me.